Good morning. This is Money Management. I'm Mike Mayo with the Spokane Office of the Opus 111 Group. As we've been doing for our most recent broadcast, this one is recorded. So I apologize. We won't be able to take any calls, but uh, in I hope you'll find the information to be helpful in any regard. Right. Uh, I just want to start with the uh, way the week ended. The Dow was at 21,052. The S&P at 24.88, the Nasdaq ended at 73.73, gold settled at 16.19 an ounce, silver at 14.33 an ounce, crude uh, ticked up to 28.34 a barrel, 10-year treasury held at 0.60%, and soft fly wheat also held, it was at 6.10 a bushel. Now for the quarter, which ended uh, early this past week, the Dow was down 21.8%. That was its worst quarter since 1987, and its worst first quarter ever. I don't know, <laughs> the dubious achievement award, I would think. Uh, the S&P ended uh, lower by 18.7%, and that's on track for its worst quarter since 2008, and its worst first quarter since, uh, let's see, 1938. So this has not been a good start, uh, shall we say, uh, or a good end to the quarter. And certainly this week hasn't been exactly a trip to Hollywood in terms of how you would say um, getting us started for a new and improved quarter. Now, I did get uh, my first question about uh, should someone quit making their retirement contributions until all this dust settles, shall we say. And it wasn't from people who need the money because they're worried about their job or family finances. This was totally a market call, as in, why should I continue to put money in stocks if they're going down? Well, reason's quite simple. Uh, the retirement contributions you make into the stock market during a drop like this will likely be among the best purchases you ever make. You know, I don't know why folks think that when stocks have generally dropped in price, their value is decreasing and their risk rising when <laughs> history and math say, well, it's quite the opposite. You know, even those folks who are fast approaching retirement or even in retirement could still see their current contributions grow for the next two, three decades. And then there's that fact that waiting until the dust settles is a strategy that's never really worked in the history of the markets. Because... When does the dust settle? <laughs> when is that point? I don't know. Nobody does until after it's over. Now, this um, investing into your retirement plans, be they uh, 401k, 403b, TSP, uh, IRAs, uh, not so much because you can do those in typically more lumps, but the way you do that, it's called dollar, excuse me, <clears throat> dollar cost averaging and uh, you don't need to nail the bottom in order to succeed because each time you know it's called defined contribution plan so each time you're putting in your money every couple weeks you're buying your portfolio's worth of whatever it's worth at that point so when the markets are down as they are now you're buying a lot more shares than what you would have uh, say uh, two months ago so uh, continuing to invest while stocks are far below where they were just five weeks ago, I think that's way easier than trying to bottom the market, bottom tick the market. Now, retirement contributions, yeah, we know they always feel better when stocks are rising, but the reality is you get the biggest bang for your buck when they're falling. 
Now to uh, kind of jump over to some economic news. <laughs> if you've been following the oil price, you definitely uh, need a neck brace. That stuff has been all over. The Saudis and the Russians are fighting to see who can be the uh, top dog uh, for the rest of the world in terms of oil production. And so they're uh, turning on their respective taps and uh, the production is going way up. And of course, as you know, we're not using a lot of oil all around the world. So um, supply way up, demand down, there goes the price. So oil dropped to an 18-year low last Monday, and that was demand continuing to drop. And again, that, uh, shall we say, tussle, family tussle uh, in OPEC uh, being the biggest reason of it. Now, with much of the world in lockdown as the uh, pandemic rages on, Again, the oil demand has fallen off. People aren't traveling. I think there was, I read something that a TSA uh, a couple of days ago this week, uh, a year ago, processed 12 million people. And uh, in, in this instance, they uh, only had processed 153,000 people. That's for the country. So yeah, I think, yeah, traveling is off just a bit. Uh and so when you don't have the big demand for uh, business and so on, uh, the jet fuel gasoline goes down. And uh, the oil price dropped uh, to its lowest price. Uh, it settled at its lowest price in February of 2002. But come Thursday, oop, all is forgiven. It jumped up 25%. That was the biggest single percentage gain ever. Uh, because they, the president come out and said he's trying to get the Saudis and the Russians to talk. Uh, people like that idea. And so energy shares jumped as uh, the biggest one-day rally on record. That uh, took away some of the concerns about financial and job losses in that sector. <laughs> and uh, I don't know, this kind of tickled me. Uh, you know, in Canada, uh, you can get a pint of good beer, I don't know, uh, a blue or whatever, but it uh, costs you about five bucks. Now, here's the problem. You can get a barrel of oil, West Canada Select, for less than that. It's being quoted at around four fifty a barrel, which is, of course, cheaper than beer. Now, the reason it's so much cheaper than uh, our beer, our, our beer, <laughs> our, our oil, is that it's a much heavier blend. It's the... Uh, Sands, it's the oil that comes from the crude sands up there. And it trades to a discount to West Texas Intermediate. But in any case, yeah. I remember in the 80s in Alaska, we could get uh, a red salmon was $8, and so too was a barrel of oil. So it's not the first time we've seen low oil prices uh, around the world. Now, Bank America kind of threw a little water on the party this week. They said that... Uh, they're forecasting the, quote, deepest recession on record. That's pretty heavy. Now, they're saying that uh, they're looking for a 35% plus drop for the GDP for the entire year, which they say would be nearly five times more severe than the post-war average. However, the smart money is continuing to see pockets of opportunity in this market. I mean, jeepers criminy. When you look at some of the prices on these high-quality companies, uh, you know, as I've said before, back up the truck and start throwing it in there. Uh, we'll talk about that in a little while. Now, Goldman Sachs has revised its view on how the virus will affect the economy. and They're seeing a sharper downturn than they originally thought, but they're seeing an even bigger upturn on the other end. 
among their expectations, unemployment rate, <laughs> you ready for this, a peak around 15% later this year, uh, well above their original expectations for 9 Gross domestic product, they're saying it'll drop 9% with a total 34% drop in GDP. So all this happy news is coming out. And then uh, even the St. Louis Fed's getting in the act. They're saying that... Uh, uh, re reductions in employment of 47 million folks, which is a 32% unemployment rate. Oh my goodness, the party just keeps on going, doesn't it? Uh, the uh, And St. Louis Fed President James Bullard, Bullard said the jobless number, quote, will be unparalleled, but don't get discouraged. This is a special quarter, and once the virus goes away, and if we play our cards right and keep everything intact, then everyone will be going back to work and everything will be fine. Well, you know, we'll see, I guess, but uh, I, I would go with that. Uh, we're, we're bound to have this aberration in numbers just because of what's happened here in the last month. So you can't really, and that's why the markets haven't reacted that badly to these things coming out and becoming a matter of record. It's known, they understand why it's happening. It isn't a surprise and it's very bad, but it isn't the end of the world. So we're going to be back with a little bit more news on the economy. I'm going to talk with you about uh, this CARES Act and uh, also some other market comments. So uh, this is Mike Mayo. I'm with the Spokane Office of the Opus 111 Group. You're listening to Money Management on KXLY 920. Good morning. This is Money Management. I'm Mike Mayo with the Spokane Office of the Opus 111 Group. And unfortunately, uh, we're doing this a lot uh, recorded, not live, uh, due to the virus stuff. And so uh, we won't be able to accept calls. However, I do hope that you'll still stay tuned and get some benefit from uh, what we're putting out here this morning. You know, a couple other things before I get into the CARE Act. Um, in terms of jobs, uh, you know, we're feeling this pain associated with these uh, mayor and governor mandated shutdowns. You know, and there's going to be more pain ahead, but there's going to be a recovery starting this year. I'm convinced of that. The economic numbers will probably get worse as more parts of the country do shut down and and you get more involved in this, uh, what do they call it, social distancing stuff. But without any real clear sense of when the threat from the virus will let up, it isn't clear when the lights will actually all start coming out again. Now, in the past two weeks, we've seen about 6% of the labor force uh, filing for jobless benefits. And uh, that's last week, we saw 6.6 .6 million new claims filed. So that's 10 million folks uh, over the past couple weeks. And again, that's unfortunate, but it's not a surprise. And so, see, uh, in a usual recession or market drop like this, we've had all a lot of the economic wheels fall off and so on and so forth. But <laughs> when somebody says, nope, you just stop, that's a whole nother deal. And so we're getting a lot of this, to uh, way of my way of thinking, the uh, pent-up demand being built up on the side here. So uh, let's get to something that is of interest to everybody because it pretty much applies to almost everybody, and that's called the CARES Act, C-A-R-E-S Act. And I'm just going to uh, hit you with some um, answers to some questions that folks have posed. That 
They want to know, uh, can they take money from their IRA uh, to, well, deal with the slowdown or uh, a slowdown in their income? And the answer is yes. It waives the 10% early withdrawal penalty. So if you're less than 55, 50, excuse me, 59 and a half, there will be no additional 10% early withdrawal penalty. And you can withdraw up to 100000 from your IRA and not be penalized. Now, of course, if you don't have 100000 I guess you got to borrow it from somebody else's. But in any case, you can go up to 100. Now, you still owe income tax in that withdrawal because that's how they do those things uh, at your ordinary income tax bracket. But here's a little kind of beneficial hook, if you will. The provision is for people who have been affected by the virus. Either you've gotten sick or your spouse has, or you've lost your job, or your business has been affected. I think this would apply to a whole lot of every, whole lot of everyone. Okay. Uh, in any case, it will it'll apply to a lot of people. And uh, But you're going to have to be prepared, I would guess, to uh, show this if you're using the money. So can you put the money back? I mean, that is to say, back into the IRA uh, to avoid paying income tax? Typically, no, but in this world, bizarro world, yes. So um, if you're, just for instance, you're in a 22% tax bracket, you'd owe, without any deductions and all that stuff, 22% on the amount you've withdrawn. So using that $100,000 example, you would owe $22,000 in tax. But, and this is a big but, you have three years to pay those taxes off. So you can... Split it up equally between 2020, 2021, 2022, and you can return cash your IRA from this early withdrawal whenever you want over the next three years to avoid owing the taxes pro rata. So what about your 401ks, 403bs, TSPs? Do they get the same treatment? Not exactly. So when you take money from an IRA, you're taking your own money out plus, well, minus the taxes you owe. In order to take money from one of the other plans, type plans, the 401k, 3B, or 457-2, yes, and the TSP, it's either going to be a distribution or a loan against those assets. So you have a choice. Now, not every one of those plans allows loans. So if they don't allow loans, well, that kind of limits your choice right there. But uh, the borrowing limit you can take from your 401k for a loan can go up to 100000 It has been fifty all along. And again, the 10% penalty is waived, just like for the IRA folks. And if you choose to take a distribution from one of those plans, you also will have three years to repay the loan, so you can minimize what you owe on tax. Um, and now, here's one that's important to know the difference. Can you borrow from your IRA? No, 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 no. You can never borrow from the IRA, ever, period. End of story. Whatever kind of IRA it is. Um, that's, no. I mean, you can't uh, use the assets as collateral. They call that a non-qualified distribution, and you don't want to even be having a deal with that when the federalities find out that's what you did. So, so can you freeze uh, the required minimum distributions if you don't want to sell, you know, with things down so much? Now, this is a pretty good one for folks of an age because, yes, you can freeze your required minimum distribution. If you're over 72, uh, you, you have been given a waiver 
to halt your RMDs for this year. That means you can wait to take the money out of an IRA or other qualified plan account until next year. Now, we've had folks ask us whether or not this includes beneficial IRAs that have been inherited. Don't have the definitive guidance on that, so I would say hold off before uh, taking those distributions for now. Um, and check with your tax professional. They'll be able to know uh, what the final word is on that. So if you've already taken your RMD, however, you may be able to just roll that back into your IRA. So once again, talk with your tax professional to see just how you can do that. And if you ha your business is hurting or you have bills, no other way to pay them, uh, you know, taking that early withdrawal from the IRA could be smart provided you have a plan to return the funds to the account as soon as possible to avoid owing the tax. Now, the one-time waiver of the 10% penalty makes it a little bit less painful, but if the value of your retirement account has fallen and you don't want to sell your stocks to take that RMD, well, you get a pass this year, and hopefully we'll see it back where it belongs next year. Okay? So, <laughs> excuse me. Um... You know, the assumption so far, I'm changing gears here, I'm sorry, is that we're not in a structural long-term economic downturn. The recession, this, uh, how would I say, artificially reduced in session, recession is turning off supply but not demand. So people must go back to work and businesses have to work to reopen. And I think widespread testing will help reduce the fear and allow that to go forward. Now, a Citibank survey of institutional clients showed about 80% wanted to commit more cash to stocks. Now, institutional clients, uh, those are the big money guys, the mutual funds, uh, trust companies, things of that nature. And, you, you know, uh, one of the worst ways to long-term wealth accumulation is panic selling, because if you're doing that, you're not going to accumulate anything. Investors typically panic buy at market tops because they're afraid of missing out, and then they panic sell at bottoms because they fear they'll lose all their money. Well, neither are typically realistic, nor are they um, prudent. You know, I did a little uh, just random sampling of some great companies that I'm familiar with, just to see how much they've... Uh, Changed, and this is not a buy list. This is just information to kind of uh, reinforce what I've been suggesting here. Now, ExxonMobil, we know, big, largest energy company in the U.S., perhaps the world, selling as of Friday at 39 and a quarter. Now, it's been 30 to 83 in the last 12 months, pays a dividend of 8.8%. AT&T has been between 26 and 40. It's at 27.5, pays a 7.5% dividend. IBM, the old I-beam, it's at 106.5. 90 to 159 has been its range. It pays a 6.1% dividend. Alaska Airlines, we all know Alaska Airlines. They're selling at $25 a share. Their low is 20. Their high has been 72. They have a 6% dividend. And... Uh, <laughs> There's a, a an ET, ETF called uh, First Excuse Me First Trust Energy. It symbol is F E N Foxtrot Echo November. 
Uh, it's selling at $9 a share. It's been six. It's been as high as 23. And if you're ready for this, the uh, current yield is 25.6%. Now, that's an energy stock, and it's primarily in the Master Limited Partnership, so there's mechanical reasons for that. But this is this is what's out there right now, folks. And if you're sitting on your hands... Uh, or sitting on your money at uh, no percent in a bank or credit union or savings account or money market, whatever it is, I'm not exactly sure what to tell you. I mean, these are tremendously great companies. These are not startups. These are companies that have been around a long time. They are leaders in their respective areas. Um, I don't think they're going out of business. Sure, they may, some of them may reduce their dividends, uh, but even, for example, if Exxon reduced its dividend in half, it's still 4.4%, and that's uh, somewhat better than most, uh, well, how about bonds? I mean, you can't even come close to a bond on these things. And dividends appreciate, excuse me, will tip, typically increase over time uh, so that you're going to have that move up plus the potential for those stocks to even go back anywhere close to where they were in the last 12 months. That's uh, sorry, just frustrating because some you know people are hesitant to do this, and it's the old um, how would I say? It's hard to fight your wiring. It's all about emotions as opposed to logic. Now, if you're a buy and hold investor, you know it's important to remember that a market crisis like this one is it comes with the territory. Yeah, I know, it's stating the obvious here, but I think it's worth saying again, the stock market has returned roughly 9.7% per year over the past 90 plus years. Now, that does include, if you do the math, you can see that includes the depression, wars, recessions, rising interest rates, falling interest rates, all kinds of political hoo-ha, bear markets, booms, busts, inflation, deflation, high oil, low oil, cheapers, everything in between. I've been doing this since 1973, and I'm here to tell you that um, <laughs> you don't see opportunities like this one very often. And I, and I did not misuse the term opportunities. This is, as I've said earlier, this is the time to back up the truck and start adding positions that you will be saying, what a smart person I was to do that in 2020 when they had that big sale. Now, I'm not saying everyone should be or can be a buy and hold investor. Much of that decision comes down to your personality, of course, your temperament and uh well, primarily that. There's really no one-size-fits-all way to invest. You know, the hardest part of a buy-and-hold strategy is that for it to work, you have to do the buying. That's the fun part. But now you have to do the holding when the markets are doing what they're doing now. So it's much easier to buy and hold when markets are going up, but sometimes they don't. So why do investors think that when stocks are declining in price, their values decreasing? Excuse me, decreasing and their risk going up. Well, why does an investor who's been able to hold on through a twenty percent drop throw it all in when they go down thirty percent, despite their reason and experience telling them that it's much closer to a bottom? Why do people accumulating stocks for retirement ask us if they should stop their contributions? No idea. But this is not new news. Uh, 
There was a financial journalist named Horace Wright. I'll read you what he said. He said, The U.S. and British economies cannot subsist without sowing the wind and reaping the whirlwind of a financial crisis two or three times in each generation. The crises recurred with the regularity of clockwork so that people pretend to know when to expect one by looking in the almanac. Now, almanac might be a clue, but Mr. White wrote this comment in 1876. What does that tell you? This is not the first time that this kind of stuff has happened, is what that means. You know, with the virus spreading all around the country, it's almost like a switch has been thrown on the economy. Turned out the lights first here and first then there. I've had the occasion to be doing some traveling around the West uh, these last few weeks and uh, meeting with clients and so on. And uh, I'll tell you what, it's like a bad science fiction movie out there. There's uh, <laughs> like no traffic on the interstates. And then when you get to the major cities, uh, you can just roll bowling balls down the street. It's pretty nuts. Uh, but in any case, uh, you know, the economy, I think, could be in good shape when the switch finally gets back flipped on. But that depends on how uh, we're handling the crisis in the meantime. It's all about attitude. And uh, I certainly hope the attitudes improve from what they are currently. You know, for starters, it's important to recognize there was nothing wrong with the economy before we got hit with this epidemic. One of the things we love to do as humans is to take the recent past and then project it indefinitely out into the future as if nothing will ever change. We do this in good times and in bad times, and they call that the recency bias. The only solution I know for recency bias is to basically lengthen your definition of the recent past instead of just looking back a couple months thinking in terms of years and decades. You'll get a much better how would I say result that way? You know, we're now, I don't think I'm going to get the, um, or actually I probably would get the uh, obvious award here. We're at one of those uh, times of high uncertainty right now. We're applying massive monetary and fiscal stimulus to the downturn, and it'll probably be quite deep, but I think relatively fleeting. You know, the short to intermediate outterm outcomes, we don't know, but and they're unknowable. I mean, how could we know them? So, be patient. Everyone is always itching to find and get into the market at the bottom, and very few actually ever happen to do that. Stocks generally go up over time. You know Why? Because they're not just numbers on a screen. They actually represent something very real. They're fractional shares of ownership in a business, a real businesses. And these businesses are the lifeblood of the economy, and the economy is the engine of progress. So, uh, you, you have to hang on. Like J.P. Morgan said, uh, you can go broke betting against the United States. You know, and, and in the real world, things generally fluctuate between pretty good and not so hot. But <laughs> in Wall Street, I'll tell you what, boy, I, perception often swings from flawless and wonderful to hopeless and, oh, the world is ending and, oh, my goodness. You know, a month ago, most people thought the outlook was generally favorable. They had a few troubles on the, the horizon, perhaps, but they had trouble thinking of a big negative catalyst. Well, it would appear that the aforementioned catalyst has made reared its ugly head. 
So, you know, market events like we're experiencing can get in the way of life events. There are ways to mitigate, if even just partially, the consequences of some adverse sequence of returns. Simplest way to do that is to raise some cash ahead of time. Now, this is not market timing. It's more like life timing. And in terms of the markets now being down, well, I wouldn't necessarily be raising cash unless you had some tactical reason for doing it uh, in some issues that were down and didn't look as if they had much of a chance of recovering. Now, if you have a portfolio of solid companies with reliable dividends, and again, that's what we were talking about earlier with some of those examples of companies that have been beaten up badly but are paying tremendous dividends, it really doesn't matter a lot what the markets do. See, because historically, the markets are up 70% of the time, 7-0. Your share prices will still increase over time, apart from these occasional uh, blips, you know, like these logicless drips, drops, trips, falls from grace, all of that stuff. But up or down, those stocks will continue to pay your dividends every quarter or every month, depending upon how they're set up, steadily and reliably making you money. Or you have the option, especially if you're a younger person, you don't have to take the dividends in cash. You can reinvest those guys and have them buy more shares or units in whatever it is you made the investment in, getting some compounding uh, that uh, will uh, likely help you over time. Now, this way, no matter what everyone else is doing, you don't have to panic. You know, it's the... Uh, I call it the sweep, sleep well at night phenomenon, also known as the swan. Not the black swan, but just a regular swan where you can just chill out. Now, diversification, you know, it's a pretty good thing because in theory anyway, it should help you earn a given level of return at a relatively lower level of risk. But diversification just isn't about portfolio construction. In fact, for the majority of investors, uh, diversification has little to do with modern portfolio theory. And the reason for that, I think, is that modern portfolio theory assumes that all or most of us are rational thinkers. And I think the last couple of weeks has put paid to that perception. Uh, diversification is a form of risk management it's in the investment decision-making process. It helps you to fiscally live to see another day in the markets where it's never too hot and never too cold. And diversification can help you to avoid panicking when markets go to extremes as, oh, I don't know, they occasionally do. And holding extreme positions in your portfolio is a recipe for disaster, as is getting overly concentrated in one particular sector or in your retirement plan at work that you're heavily concentrated in your uh, employers shares just it's just not good good tactics regardless of how good uh, your employer company may be now some investors are going to panic no matter what they're positioning in the markets i think they just they're wired that way well and because if no one panicked we wouldn't be in these situations in the first place would we well diversification whether you do it by asset class region strategy well it all applies and I think it's one of the most useful forms of panic management I can think of. You know, when 
stocks cratered recently. Uh, the bonds did their job by providing stabilization in a down market. They do provide portfolio volatility and also some panic relief, even when they're paying zero point uh, fraction rates of return. Yeah, and and again, some people are born with that steady hand. Others need to be trained to avoid panicking when things get a little stressful. So, you know, there are three things to do right now, I believe. One is don't panic and sell. Number two is expect more fluctuation. We may retest the lows. Who knows? And pick up bargains with any free cash. I mean, it's just... Take advantage of these prices. You know, buy low, sell high, that kind of thing. That's how it works. Peter Lynch, who uh, was, a, I think, the best fund manager ever, uh, having run the Magellan Fund for uh, Fidelity for many years, he said, the real key to making money in stocks is to not get scared out of them. So don't be scared. Stay with quality, be diversified, and don't listen to the news and the headlines. I mean, if you want to make yourself crazy, certainly in the last couple of weeks, you've had the opportunity to do that. Uh, and as you can see, the news is pretty much a one-trick pony. So if you get tired of hearing that movie, uh, that uh, song over and over again, you may want to change what it is you're doing. I have uh, something I just wanted to add that uh, to give perspective to what's been going on in the markets. Uh, perspective in the sense that you know, when things are down and uh, people get caught up in, as we were talking earlier, the recency bias and all that stuff, I want to flip it around and uh, kind of see what's uh, transpired in past experiences over the past 20 years. You say, 20 years? That's kind of a long time. Well, yeah, but uh, when you're considering retiring uh, time frames and things of that nature, that's really more to the point. So let's just see how you would have done there. Things have gone. Now, large cap stocks uh, have pretty much dominated, but maybe not as much as folks had assumed. Um, the <laughs> in the early two thousands to the late twenty tens, you know, the two uh, thousands were not really great for the S and P, but uh, the next ten years were pretty good. Um, and small and mid cap stocks have kept up over the past ten years and actually outpaced the uh, bigger name stocks since two thousand. Majority of the S&P uh, relative outperformance, it's come mostly up until, uh, oh, I don't know, January of this year. S&P uh, has outperformed both small and mid caps by roughly 17% in total since 2015. Now, emerging markets and commodities had a much better decade in the 2000s than the 2010s. Emerging markets were up 10% in 2000 and 2009. Uh, those countries are usually, uh, I don't know how else to say it, one-trick ponies. They have one product, uh, cocoa or wheat or something of that nature that is what they have to offer to sell. And how that particular product is going around the world will determine how their economy is going. And right now, commodities are uh, not in favor, shall we say. And... Uh, you know, correlations don't also don't always go one to one in a crash. In 2008, cash and bonds were about the only things that went up, and everything else got pretty well beat up. Um, now the S and P was down three years in a row from 2000 to 2002, 
but REITs, real estate investment trusts, they were up all three of those years. Small cap stocks were up the first two years of the bear market and commodities up two or three years as well. So you, you just don't really know. Uh, you know, <laughs> cash used to yield something too. Instead of the uh, 0.2 whatever, uh, one month's T-bills paid out almost 6% in 2000, 4% in 01. And, uh, you know, you could almost hit 2% just last year in some of these uh, short-term accounts. And pretty much everything takes a turn at the bottom of the heap. You know, we've talked about this. Markets are cyclical. That's just how they go. Sometimes they're up, sometimes they're down. And, you know, they always say there's a bull market somewhere. That's because everybody runs on their own cycle. So some are up and some are down, but not at the same time. You know, the average return the following year for some of the worst performers uh, has been pretty good. For example, emerging market small caps were down 58% in 08. They were up 114% the next year. REITs uh, fell in 2018% in 2007, and then were down 39% in 2008. So, you know, these are kind of outliers, and that's just how it works sometimes. But I just wanted you to know that the market's, Again, they work in cycles. This is going back to the buy and hold. So you stay with your quality, stay with your plan. Don't listen to the dang headlines and you'll do fine. Thank you very much for listening. Again, I apologize for the recording. I, I'm sure at some point we'll be back live and in radio color. Uh, but uh, in any case, um, thank you for listening and we'll be back next Saturday at nine pacific this is mike mail i'm with the spokane office of the opus 111 group you've been listening to money management be sure and listen to opus 111's mike mail every saturday morning on 9 20 a.m kxly in spokane stream the show on kxly 920.com or subscribe to this podcast and we'll bring the latest episode to you securities offered through kms financial services